0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023 Potential savings will vary Discounts not available in all states and situations Hi, I'm Debbie Millman Canva is great for
1: designing visual content for work no matter what industry or department you work in At canva.com. Designed for work.
2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from DesignObserver.com. This is the 10th anniversary of the podcast. 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Doug Powell about how designers can use their skills beyond the traditional confines of the profession. Be the best designer you can. Find lots of new places and organizations and ways to do design. Here's Debbie Millman.
1: If you've been around the design profession for a while, you'll know that design isn't what it used to be. Designers are working in capacities that would have been unimaginable 30 years ago. They're working for social change, they're starting businesses, and they've reshaped the way business itself is done. Doug Powell has written about this phenomenon, and he exemplifies it as well. Currently, he's the design principal at IBM. He joins me now to talk about some of the many things he did before he got there. Doug Powell, welcome to Design Matters.
2: Thank you, Debbie. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
1: Absolutely. I understand that you believe that SpongeBob SquarePants is the rare cartoon that is totally mesmerizing for very young kids, but is also absolutely hysterical for adults. It, and I'm curious as to why you feel that way. It
2: hits the sweet spot. It is absolutely a miraculous feet. Yeah, I love SpongeBob SquarePants. I I was totally introduced to that show by my kids. It's absolutely hysterical. It's hysterical on so many levels. And there are a few shows that are able to sort of walk that line and be really in a a sophisticated way, appealing to small kids in a really sort of cheeky, slapsticky way, but also, you know, have these just Nuggets of really great humor, and SpongeBob absolutely does that.
1: Better or worse than Teletubbies, because they have also been... Described as a interesting show for both kids and adults for very different reasons, very different need states. Yeah,
2: yeah, and very different. Uh, I would say age, uh, you know, age appropriateness. Teletubbies, I just found so just massively annoying. I just could not <laughs> the
1: repetition
2: could not even go there. And my kids didn't, thankfully, didn't really get into that show all that much. But when it was on, I pretty much evacuated.
1: And you also seem to hate Barney
2: you <laughs> Barney is vile. I have to say. Now I'm just not going to even try to be kind.
1: <laughs> Doug and his opinions on children's television shows. More after the break. <laughs> Thank
2: you. Thank you. You've really gotten to the the, the essence here, Debbie. Just...
1: Social change in no. Barney. You grew up in Minneapolis and Auckland, New Zealand. Were you born in New Zealand?
2: No, no. I was. I was actually born in Minot, North Dakota. Neither of those places. My dad was in the Air Force, and Minot is uh, home to a massive, huge Air Force base. In fact, many of our missile silos are based there in, in Minot, North Dakota. So I was born there. My dad went on to spend his career with the 3M company based in St. Paul, Minnesota. So,
1: what did he do for 3M?
2: He did a lot of things. He started in marketing, it kind of started in his mid-20s, you know, basically right out of grad school and then the Air Force, and worked his way through that company and ended up being essentially the CMO, Chief Marketing Officer of 3M, before he retired about 10 years ago. And so he really had an amazing career. And it's something actually that I think about now, thinking about the way we work, not just as designers, but in modern day times. And thinking about it, is that even a possibility to start with one company in your 20s as basically your first job and travel that entire career with one company? It's it, I imagine now it's just unthinkable.
1: Well, it's unthinkable, but it's also something that people would likely warn you against doing because it would pigeonhole you as only being able to do that one thing. I think there are very few companies that... If you said you worked there for your entire career, it would seem almost unfortunate. Except like, for like Google or yeah. Apple, like, <laughs> the, like the
2: like the the response would be, "Oh, that's a shame." Right? Like, oh, like you didn't experiment, you
1: didn't. Whereas, but then again, you know, our grandparents—probably not our parents, but our grandparents—probably weren't thinking about whether or not they were happy at their jobs, Mm. what kind of spiritual fulfillment they were getting doing the things that they were doing every day.
2: Right, right. Yeah, I think that a new generation of professionals, young professionals, kind of coming into the early part of their career and having a whole set of attitudes that are really, I think, unique to this moment in time.
1: Oh, absolutely. Our grandparents We're happy to have a job. Uh We wanted to have a job that also gave us some sort of sense of purpose. And now... The kids that are coming up want not only a job that they can feel like they're getting some sort of purpose from, but that's also changing the world.
2: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right. And that is stimulating and creatively fulfilling and propelling them forward professionally. I mean, all of these things. You
0: can't
1: even get that from a partner, let alone a job, There's a,
2: right? there is a very high bar, a very high bar. <laughs> you know, it's been interesting for me in the in the last couple of years being with IBM and ha- having the chance to get to know designers from different parts of the world, and how those attitudes are, you know, there's some commonalities, but there are also some differences. We have studios in the UK and, and Dublin, Ireland, and those attitudes, many of them I find to be very different in different cultures.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about your past yes. before we continue to go into your current You graduated from Washington University in St. Louis in 1988. You were also a recipient of the 2014 Distinguished Alumni Award from the Sam Fox School of Design there. Did you study design?
2: I studied illustration there. You did? I studied illustration there.
1: Surprise, surprise.
2: Now, interestingly, at the time, the illustrators were required to take sort of basic 2D design typography graphic basically early foundation level graphic design courses and of course we just just thought it was the most idiotic thing to have illustrators learning design but of course as I got into my career and I realized that that's really where I wanted to go I had these core skills that in another program I might not have had
1: One year after you graduated, in 1989, you co-founded the Minneapolis-based graphic design and branding firm, Schwartz Powell. But you just finished school. What gave you the sense that you could start your own company so soon after entering the job market?
2: It was a combination of things. And I give almost all of the credit to my ex-wife, Lisa Schwartz, who was my business partner and, and life partner at that time. And You know, it was a weird time in design and in the economy. We were kind of coming out of a recession. The job market was rough, but there was still work out there. So she found that there was, you know, ample, at the time, kind of freelance project work and started kind of growing a practice. And I joined uh, in the early years. It was kind of working after hours and then joining her full time about 1990.
1: So what were you doing between... We, did you have a, a secret job that we don't know about? Yeah,
2: no. well, I have a couple of not-so-secret jobs. I was the in-house graphic designer for the Minnesota Timberwolves basketball team, their very wow. first in-house graphic designer. Yes, I suppose that's a little bit of a secret job. That's
1: cool. Yeah, Why yeah. did you leave?
2: Well, because the, the dirty secret about working for sports teams from the outside, it seems like, God, that must be the most awesome job, but it's really not. No. <laughs> it's not a very good job. And, um, yeah, so... the
1: Timberwolves, they're an okay team, right?
2: Yeah, no, they're not, no. So <laughs> it, was, it was a hard job. I was kind of the, uh, the guinea pig, the first person to have that job there, and, you know, anyway.
1: In 2002, your life changed for a lot of reasons. Likely the biggest... Was that your then seven year old daughter Maya, was diagnosed with type one diabetes that must have been terrifying
2: that was not a fun day um, that was one of the one of the worst and everything changed in an instant, uh, which is one, part of the cruel nature of that particular disease is that with type one diabetes there's no question. At one moment, your kid is feeling kind of fluish and sick and you're kind of wondering what's going on. And then, you know, they do a finger prick blood test and the nurse walks out of the room and comes back in a minute and a half later and boom, you know, this is what it is. It's diabetes. It's never going to go away. Everything has changed at that moment there's no second opinion. There's no, oh, we'll get some more tests. And you can have a a few days or a week or two weeks to kind of adjust to the possibility that, you know, something awful might be. And uh, so once
1: you get diabetes, you have it for the rest of your life.
2: Yeah. Yeah. She is 21 now and still has diabetes. And unless there is a, a cure, which we are very hopeful for, she'll have it for the rest of her life.
1: As a result of the experience, you recognized what you referred to as the alarming lack of well-designed tools for learning and managing the daily complexities of diabetes. What did you do next?
2: Well, I think we did what designers do. We started tinkering with, originally just in a very intuitive way, here we are making lunch for Maya and you know, we can't for the life of ourselves, you know, remember what the carb count is for a peanut butter jelly sandwich. And so we have to rifle through the book that gives you all that information and then calculate a pretty complex mathematical formula in order to get an insulin dose to write on a piece of paper that she then takes with her to school so that four hours later she can inject herself with insulin. And that happening... Over and over again every day.
1: Three times a day. Yeah. Oh, and then then some. And day.
2: Yeah. And that's just the meals. You know, then there's the soccer practice and the, you know, the play dates and the birthday party and everything that kids do, right? It was an overwhelming experience. So we began to just kind of figure it out for ourselves like, what do we need? What do we need to make sense of this? And over time, some ideas just kind of started to congeal. And at some moment there, it wasn't a single moment, but we began to to see that we had perhaps some ideas that if we gave them some form, that they could not only be helpful to us, but perhaps to other people who were going through the same thing.
1: So you designed and created Type 1 Tools, which is a line of kid-friendly, intuitive, educational products with a real emphasis on graphics and simplified information. How did you go about creating this system? How did you learn enough to be able to know how to create this simplified system?
2: We talked to a lot of people. The people who know the most about diabetes are the nurse educators who are working with people with diabetes all the time. And so they, this small community of diabetes educators and nurses became a really strong resource for us. Other parents, the content itself is really quite basic. It's nutritional information. It's carbohydrate, car, the, the key, the it's key simple, piece. It's simple,
1: but life and death information. Exa-
2: exactly. And so it was more a matter of, of kind of simplifying. And the tendency in, in health is to feel the need to deliver all the information, all the information you could possibly ever need at any moment for anything. And of course, that's insane. That's totally overwhelming. So the exercise that we found ourselves going through was how little can we actually provide so that at that moment with that peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you have a single number that tells you exactly what you need at that moment. That was a real sort of insight, you know, really simplifying that uh, because you've got all these other things going on in your head, and really what you need is one stupid number.
1: you've described healthcare as a design desert. <laughs> Why is that?
2: The designers haven't arrived yet. Let me clarify that because design there there is design happening and certain parts of healthcare design is happening where the money is, basically. Which is where? So the Uh, pharmaceutical companies? Yeah, the pharmaceutical companies and device manufacturers. But the patient experience, you know, the walking into the clinic and that interaction that you have there or or that experience that you have in the clinic, and more importantly for many of us, than the experience that you have when you go home and you try to remember what you heard at the clinic and put it into practice so that you or your child or your elderly parents can live a healthy life, that's where there is just not enough attention and not enough design. I mean, that's
1: shocking. It's shocking. Yeah. I probably get more education about how to do my hair when I leave the hairdresser. Exactly.
2: Exactly. And so I, I see just a huge opportunity there.
1: After working with Eli Lilly, Roche... Blue Cross Blue Shield, the American Diabetes Association, you sold Health Simple to McNeil Nutritionals, which is a division of Johnson & Johnson. You did this in 2007. How did that happen? What was that like for you? Did they just call you up one day and say, hey, Doug, let's buy this business?
2: No. And in fact, we were forming partnerships with different organizations in healthcare that we felt could benefit from this approach. And McNeil Nutritionals originally was one of those partnerships. And so we got to know them. We began to talk to them. Our, you know, we were originally sort of pitching them as, uh, you know, a, in a partnership sort of relationship idea. And they happened to be at a moment in time where they were beginning to envision the next era of their company and their brands. And they saw what we were doing and they, and they uh, saw the future of that part of their company in Health Simple. And so they began talking to us about potential acquisition
1: was it sad for you to give it up?
2: Yes. Oh, yes. It was a. It was a very. There were. There were a lot of mixed emotions there. I mean, we really felt we. We, we struggled with it, and uh, there. There were a lot of things that I think we wanted to do with the business that we knew we couldn't do if we gave up control of it. It was two thousand seven, which, uh, if you do the math, was right before two thousand eight, <laughs> which, if you do the history, was yeah. not a very. Uh, you know, not a very. Fun year for many of us economically. So there were all sorts of, of sort of forces at play there that we were trying to make sense of and make a make the right decision around.
1: Are you happy with the way the brand has evolved under? No, no? no.
2: That's part of what you do when you when you go through that process. Is you you know you lose control that control.
1: In 2013, you left your business and Minnesota to start an entirely new chapter in your career at IBM in Austin, Texas. Before we talk about what you're doing there, I want to talk a little bit about reinvention. I know that the themes of restlessness and reinvention are particularly important to you, and it seems from the different aspects of your career, you've always pushed into doing something that you almost weren't quite trained to do or educated to do, but yet felt capable of doing. So what was what was that about, that big, giant shift?
2: Yeah, that was a big, giant shift. And yeah, I think there is a pattern in my work that has been about sort of an impatience and a what I think of it as is, uh, you know, what more can I do? And what more can we do as designers? Not being uh, satisfied, I guess, with the role that has been handed to us, right? And really always trying to stretch that. And,
1: That's an intrinsic part of your nature, Doug.
2: Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, and I think about where that comes from. I didn't know Tibor. Never met him in person. But Tibor I, Kalman, the Tibor founder
1: Kalman, of M&Company.
2: Uh, but I I had an intersection with him at the 1989 AIGA National Conference. Oh, and he did the Sa- debate
1: with Joe Duffy.
2: Yeah, in San Antonio. So the first time, you know, I was right out of school, and it was the first time I'd ever been at any sort of event like that with all of these luminary designers, including Tibor and... And Milton and all sorts of Michaels and um, <laughs> and it was just a just such a, an amazing experience for me and Tibor just absolutely was mesmerizing. I think that was that was something that he was always doing, and I, I think something was implanted in me at that moment uh, to push, to push, and to question, and to not be satisfied with what what's being requested and what's being asked to really challenge that.
1: So you're not interested in answering the questions as much as you are in pushing what the questions really are. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Why do you want to know that? <laughs> <laughs>
1: you're currently a design principal at IBM Design where you direct the design education program. And I know that you've said that it's absolutely critical to be rethinking design education, because design education can no longer stop at graduation.
2: Yeah, that's been a real um, fundamental insight that has fueled the program that we're building at IBM. We're hiring hundreds of designers, and most of them, uh, most of them are uh, direct from university, they're entry-level designers. And we work with them for uh, for three months that is kind of like a bridge between the academic and the professional experience.
1: You helped create AIGA's Design for Good effort both before and during your term as AIGA National President. Do you feel that designers now have an obligation to create and make work that manifests itself in positive social impact?
2: Hmm. That is a good Question? Huh. I don't think so. No.
1: So it's just a personal passion of I yours. Think it's a, a,
2: well, and 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 not just of mine. I mean, design for good was really that wasn't my idea, and uh, that wasn't. I any, thought it was. Actually. That wasn't. That <laughs> no, wasn't. think it was. Not actually. not the idea of any any individual person. This was really over. Over many years of, and you've been to AIGA leadership retreats, Um, you know, every year the chapter leadership from around the country at AIGA chapters gets together and, and exchanges ideas and talks about how they're doing what they're doing, their successes, their challenges and so on. And year after year, we kept hearing the stuff that I really love doing are the passion projects. This is the work that I love to do, but I can never make any money at it. It always gets relegated to the weekends and after hours, yet I'm doing my best work on those projects. And how can I do more of that? And how can I do it in a more sustained and meaningful way? And that sustainability then leads to more impactful work, right? So design for good was really an answer to that. The whole concept was very grassroots driven. And Uh, you know, really a response to what we were hearing from designers around the country.
1: Doug, the last thing I want to talk about today is what you're calling a new leadership in business that we're seeing. You've been very vocal about how designers are taking on new roles that extend our skills and value and how a new generation of design leaders are taking roles beyond design in really surprising organizations. You've cited John Maida at Kleiner Perkins, Michael Lejeune at LA Metro, Sarah Brooks at the VA, Randy Hunt at Etsy, Bill Grant now on the city council in Canton, Georgia. And you talk about how these people are pioneers and on the new frontier of design leadership. For any designer that's interested in moving into a bigger, stronger, more meaningful leadership role that includes design but isn 't relegated to design, what skills do you recommend that they develop?
2: I recommend they develop the skills of being a great designer <laughs> I, I saw I, you mentioned Bill Grant, who in the story there, bill former national president of AIGA and has run this really great design practice and Canton, Georgia, outside of Atlanta called the Grant Design Collaborative. He's run that business for many, many years. And he ran for the local city council. And I ran into him at the AIGA National Conference a few weeks ago and was talking to him about the experience that he's had in that role. And he said something that was really important to me, and that is, I bring my skills as a designer to everything I do on the city council in Canton, Georgia and that was really that was really insightful it wasn't about going and, and getting a degree in public policy or political science or something like that it was about bringing the skills of creative problem solving that we all have as designers and that we've nurtured and developed as we've grown our careers as designers bringing that into a new area and that's what all of the people that you mentioned there are doing so I think that's what needs to happen. And I think we need to be more, I guess, courageous and bold about where we do design and for whom we do design. I kind of cringe a little when I, when I hear designers say, oh, what I really need to do is go back to school and get an MBA. Really? You know, you want to go and have this, you've got this great ability to look at problems in a unique way and solve problems in a way that not many other people do. And you want to go get trained to solve problems in a way that a whole bunch of other people do and that, that have, uh, you know, it it seems to be sort of a well-worn, you know, method. I just think, you know, be a great designer, be the best designer you can, and find lots of new places and organizations and ways to do design.
1: Doug Powell, thank you for being on Design Matters today.
2: Thank you for having me, Debbie.
1: You can find out more about Doug Powell on the Merge Design blog at mergedesignblog.com. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Rainey Ortega. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.